Welcome back to Boilers and Beyond. I'm Jordan Jones. It's Sunday, March 26th. 68 teams are now down to four. And yet again, the Big Ten is not involved in the Final Four. We are in that period of the basketball calendar now where the Big Ten is sitting and watching as the sport descends on the Final Four and the transfer portal is as active as can be. Going to talk in some detail here today about some of the Big Ten's woes in the big dance. Obviously, a storyline that seems to get thicker and thicker every March, every NCAA tournament. Going to look at what some of the data actually tells you about that here today. Plus, obviously, the transfer portal is a hot topic. Uh, Purdue's roster has been a very hot topic since its upset loss against Fairleigh Dickinson. We'll look at kind of what the transfer market could look like for Purdue this season, both inbound and outbound. And we'll close out today with some thoughts on a former Purdue assistant who made a big-time career move this week. Uh, I'm sure you all know I'm referring to Micah Shrewsbury, who took the head coaching job up at Notre Dame. Going to talk about that a little bit here today as well. So a lot to get to. But I'm looking forward to this. It's kind of nice to have some of these summer episodes, I guess, you know, the the period between the end of basketball and the start of football, where you can go a little bit deeper into some of these topics and you have fewer games to talk about. Uh, Sometimes this is kind of nice to sit back and talk big picture. So if you don't already, be sure to follow along on Twitter at Boilers Beyond. I have a lot of stuff there, uh, always always talking Purdue sports, and we'll certainly be active on there with any news that comes out in regards to the transfer portal. And be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Just because there aren't games doesn't mean there won't be podcasts because it's college sports after all. Uh, there, There is really no downtime. There's always stuff to talk about, and we'll be coming here with you Uh, For all of it, but you know, so far, just it's been a crazy NCAA tournament. It's kind of been the prime example of a year where, you know, the NCAA tournament may not actually crown the best team in college basketball. Uh, The NCAA tournament, certainly um, with the exception of UConn, you know, I don't think anyone really saw any of these final four teams getting there. We got a four seed, two five seeds, and a nine seed. Certainly the CBS execs are not pleased, uh, especially since it's CBS's year to air the final four. Uh, Not great, but, you know, nonetheless, that's the tournament for you. None of the top 12 seeds are left. So, you know, while Purdue certainly had the most high profile and embarrassing loss, Uh, They're far from the only one who is disappointed in how their season ended as the top 12 teams are all home already. But, you know, the one constant here from year to year is that the Big Ten had another performance in the NCAA tournament where the narrative is growing stronger that the Big Ten cannot win in the NCAA tournament, that the Big Ten does not win in the NCAA tournament. And ultimately, you know, it it doesn't help the brand of the Big Ten. And I wanted to look at this here today. 
not as a scapegoat for Purdue's loss. If you want my thoughts on Purdue, what happened against Fairleigh Dickinson, um, maybe Purdue's style of play, all of that is in last week's episode. If you didn't listen, I, I recommend you go back and listen to that. Um, a lot of a lot of stuff in there about Purdue specifically, but you know it's been 23 years now since the Big Ten last won a national title. Um, probably a statistic that would have been unthinkable in May of two, excuse me in April of 2000 when Mateen Cleaves and that Michigan State team were cutting down the nets that the Big Ten wouldn't win another one for at least 23 years. Uh, borderline unthinkable. You know, you had Bo Ryan at Wisconsin. You still had Bobby Knight at Indiana. You still had Gene Cady at Purdue. Um, Bill Self might have been at Illinois by that point. Uh, the conference was in really good shape and still has been in really good shape really ever since. But, you know, the, the trend has gotten worse in recent years because for a long time there, you know, the Big Ten was in the conversation. You look at it ever since then, I can count seven times off the top of my head that the Big Ten has finished runner-up nationally. Uh, 02 Indiana, 05 Illinois, Greg Oden, Ohio State, um, a couple of Michigan teams in there, Michigan State losing to the Hansborough UNC team, Wisconsin in 2015 after beating Kentucky. The Big Ten's been right around it. Um, you look at 2019 when Michigan State went to the Final Four, Purdue was you know the prayer, pre- prayer play away from being in the Final Four. The Big Ten's been close, but you know since the 2020 tournament got canceled because of COVID, uh, it's been ugly for the Big Ten. You look at the last three years, 2021 was kind of the banner year for this when Ohio State and Purdue, a two-seed and a four-seed, both get bounced in the first round. Then the Illinois team with Io DeSunmu and the Luca Garza-Iowa team both get bounced in the second round. Michigan was your one Sweet 16 team. They lose to UCLA, an 11 seed. It wasn't pretty. Uh, that was that was a bad tournament for the Big Ten. Obviously, last year wasn't a great one where Iowa was a five seed, fresh off a Big Ten tournament championship. They lose to Richmond. Um, Wisconsin, Big Ten regular season champ. Same with Illinois. They were co-champions. Illinois was a four seed, Wisconsin a three. They both lose in the second round. And then you have Michigan and Purdue in the Sweet 16 both lose. Of course, Purdue losing to a 15 seed in St. Peter's. And then this year, you know, the Big Ten really only had one really high seed, that being Purdue, who falls to Fairleigh Dickinson. One team makes the Sweet 16. That's Michigan State. They lose in a classic to Kansas State. So this now marks two years in a row that the Big Ten has failed to reach the Elite Eight, uh, that now, what, that'd be five years now, four years now since the Big Ten's last Final Four appearance. Um, It's not great. And the one thing that really 
opened my eyes was a tweet from Chris Vanini, a football guy over at The Athletic. He tweeted this out. Since 2017, only Michigan, Michigan State, and Purdue have reached the second weekend of the NCAA tournament. None of the 11 other teams have. Now, those three, the two Michigan schools and Purdue, have combined for 11 second weekend appearances, three of those coming from Purdue uh, in 18, 19, and 2021. I assume that doesn't include 2017. I guess I'm not positive, but Purdue made the Sweet 16 in 2017 as well. But, you know, that's not a that's not a good stat. Um, not that the... You know, not that the Big Ten has had programs more consistently successful than those three. Those have kind of been the banner ones in that time frame. But man, you look at Iowa not breaking through, even though they've been they've been good at times. Illinois had a couple of really good teams that didn't make it. Uh, Indiana, you know, the the most national championships in the Big Ten hasn't been back to the Sweet 16 since 2016. Um, Ohio State, they've had some good teams not make it. That's not a nece- that's not a very good stat for the Big Ten. So the question really is, why is that? Why does the Big Ten struggle so much? And naturally, you know, the first the first response for myself, probably for most of you and for most of the country, comes down to the style of play in the Big Ten. The Big Ten is very post-centric. That's not exactly news to any of us. You look at how it's been over those past three seasons where you've had some unbelievable big guys in the Big Ten. You look at Luca Garza and Kofi Coburn. You look at Zach Eady and Travion Williams and Hunter Dickinson and Trace Jackson Davis. Um, some really good big guys. Even you know, even you want to go back like Daniel Oturu at Minnesota was a stud. Um, Bruno Fernando, if you go back a little bit more at Maryland, like there have been some really good big guys in the league. But you know, as we see. And year in, year out, it kind of gets proven more and more is that elite post play doesn't tend to win in the NCAA tournament. Now, I think it would be foolish to say that it's impossible to win with good, you know, with elite post play in the NCAA tournament, but the numbers certainly don't indicate that it's likely. I had this thought the other day, though. You know, you look at football, and the common criticism of the Big Ten is that it's physical, it's run heavy, um, you know, all the tight ends, all the fullbacks, you don't have that many real explosive athletes on the outside, all of that. You know, you always hear that about the Big Ten, especially the Big Ten West, but isn't that kind of similar to the criticisms of Big Ten basketball, where it's slow, it's physical, very big man-centric. You know, sometimes it's kind of played, feels like it's played in an elevator shaft, kind of like Big Ten football. Not great athletes out on the perimeter. These criticisms are very similar in both sports. And while 
I don't think it's easy to compare the two the two sports in many ways. One thing that's very true is that the recruiting base is the same for the Big Ten and both. Now, players come from everywhere. And especially in football, where you have 20-plus guys in signing classes and you have Ohio State as a as much of a national brand as there is, um, you know, there are exceptions to this, but there aren't that many crazy explosive athletes coming out of Iowa and Wisconsin and, you know, generally Indiana and all of that. It's just, that's part of it. And I think that's an interesting thing to look at, you know, it's not that there's bad basketball in the Midwest. In fact, I think it's quite the opposite. But the Big Ten doesn't get a ton of great athletes. You know, you think about some of the better players the Big Ten has had, and they've had them. Um, Iota Sunmu, Jaden Ivey, a couple of extraordinary athletes the Big Ten has had in recent years. But as a whole, the league doesn't have that much athleticism out on the perimeter that much athleticism at the guard spot and where it comes back to and where you see this a lot is that if you look at the recruiting rankings, um, the big 10 has not done a great job in terms of bringing in elite talent in recent years. Now I'll be the first to admit that basketball recruiting is completely different in terms, in terms of just how you analyze it than football recruiting is. You know, in basketball, if you find one diamond in the rough, you know, you find one guy who's a three-star recruit who was just totally overlooked and is an absolute stud, you know, that makes a lot more difference in basketball than it does football. You could hit on a two-star offensive tackle who turns into a first-round draft pick, but, you know, what does he have around him? Because we've seen Northwestern with a first-round draft pick at left tackle the last few years, and they've been terrible. Basketball is a little bit different there. You know, you you hit on a small forward who turns into just a freak athlete who can shoot it and handle the ball. I mean, it it's completely different. But it's at least worth noting because typically, you know, those five-star guys are the ones who turn into one-and-dones and the guys who... Um, really are the the generational talents. Last year, in the 2022 recruiting class, the Big Ten brought in a total of one five-star recruit, that being Jalen Hood-Shafino at Indiana. Only four of the top top 25 recruiting classes in America were Big Ten schools. Um, Not great. And I'm just going to look here at the last few classes to see how this has gone, because it is a trend. It it absolutely is. You look at 2021, um, they had four four classes in the top 25, one of those being Nebraska, uh, mostly thanks to Bryce McGowan's, and that clearly didn't do a whole lot for the Cornhuskers. They had three five-stars in the conference that year, Caleb Houston and Musa Diabate at Michigan and Max Christie at Michigan State. Um, I think for the most part, all of those guys underwhelmed 
in their one year of college basketball, especially Christie, but it's not like that Michigan team was great until their little Sweet 16 run. 2020 was almost especially bad. Uh, Only three classes inside the top 30 nationally, and there was only one five-star that year. And I'm sitting there the other day looking at 24-7 sports, seeing that it was a player from Indiana who committed, signed with the Hoosiers. And for the life of me, I'm sitting there trying to figure it out. I mean, I, I watch a lot of Indiana basketball and I'm thinking, who the hell is this? And then I click on it and it's Christian Lander. The one five-star the Big Ten brought in was Christian Lander. Um, he's playing at Western Kentucky now. I, I don't know what he's doing there, but he, that's where he is. It's safe to say that the Big Ten has not brought in the elite talent in recent years that some of these other leagues have. And when you look at it and you look at where the Big Ten lacks, it is that elite talent out on the perimeter. The Big Ten has some incredible players, and I guess I should say had now because the Big Ten is now in past tense. Zach Eady, Trace Jackson Davis, Hunter Dickinson, three of the best big guys in America. Um, You look at guys like Jalen Pickett, an incredibly unique talent uh, in what he does. You know, just ask Brad Underwood. He loves it. But the Big Ten doesn't have those freak athletes who kind of do it all. That's where I think it gets really interesting. Um, They have great college players, but it's not something that transcends into big time NBA prospects for the most part. And I know there were, you know, the Big Ten had three lottery picks last year, but just as a whole, it's not like it's that athletic of a league. And I think sometimes in the NCAA tournament, when the ball is in the hands of guards and wings so much, that sometimes catches up to the Big Ten. You know, of course, when you go to the style of play, you kind of have to look at what these players go through as well. Does it help to play 20 league games plus the Big Ten tournament before you get into the NCAA tournament? You know, does that help where every team has at least played 19 straight Big Ten games before they head to the NCAA tournament? You know, probably not. It probably wears down on teams. It's not exactly a freedom of movement league. There's a lot of contact. There's a lot of physicality. It wears players down. You could see it with Purdue this year, especially the younger guys. You could see it. I'm not a guy who really points at officiating too much, but you know that style of play being as physical as it is, and typically, you know, that's it's not. It's not super regulated. You know, guys are allowed to get away with a lot in the Big Ten. That may be part of it. You know, right now where Purdue is, Purdue's had three straight pretty disappointing exits from the NCAA tournament. Let's call it what it is here. But Purdue has a roster that is designed to win in the Big Ten. That's working. You know, from 2015 to 2023, Purdue's finished in the top four of the league all but one year. 
And that year, the Big Ten tournament and NCAA tournament didn't even get played. In that time frame, they've won three regular season titles. Uh, Purdue just missed two more, falling one game short in 2018 and 2022. Very close to having five regular season titles in there. And you look at this year where Purdue and Indiana were probably the two teams going into the NCAA tournament that you felt the best about going on a run. And they were probably the two teams that flashed the most in the regular season with potential. But at the you know, at the end of the first weekend, there was only one team from the Big Ten left standing, and it was Michigan State. And I'll ask you this. At what point in the regular season did Michigan State look like a Big Ten contender? It really never did. And at what point did you think that Michigan State was going to go on some big NCAA tournament run? you'd have to have your green and white glasses on pretty good to think that Michigan State was going to go on some run um, going into the NCAA tournament. Now, Tom Izzo gets the benefit of the doubt every time. Uh, he's the best March Madness coach of anyone in the Big Ten currently and right up there with Bob Knight in terms of all time. But, you know, I think it's really interesting that you look at the way Michigan State was built, they're very guard heavy. You know, if you look at their their starting five, their center, Mati Sissoko, was probably the worst player in their starting five. And if you want to include their sixth man, Malik Hall, I think you could probably make the argument that they had five players better than their center. Did their Big Ten struggles have to do with them not having a very good center? Does strong guard play not win? Does that not win in the Big Ten the way it tends to win in the NCAA tournament? Because I think that's where the biggest issue of them all lies is that in the Big Ten, and I know this is kind of anecdotal evidence just off of one season. But I think there's something to it. You know, if you can't win in the Big Ten without having really solid post presence, but that post presence hinders you in the NCAA tournament, boy, you're in a pretty tough dilemma here. Because remember this, you know, the NCAA tournament is how teams get judged and how seasons get remembered. But these coaches are under pressure to win in the Big Ten, too. Um, this, is a, this is a league that takes a lot of pride in itself. The, I don't know that every conference takes as much pride in a conference title as the Big Ten. But you have to win in your conference to make the NCAA tournament. I know it sounds fairly obvious, but... You know, you have to be competitive in your conference, too. And if the style that makes you competitive in the Big Ten is a style that really hamstrings you in the NCAA tournament, that's a hell of a conundrum the Big Ten's in here. How it gets out of that, I have no earthly idea. 
does bringing UCLA into the mix, you know, a pretty guard heavy program right now, does that change things up? I, I don't know. And I don't have the answers here, but it's interesting looking at this and really coming to that conclusion that if you have to have a good big guy to compete for a Big Ten championship, and that's something that really hurts you in the NCAA tournament, boy, we got a problem here. I wanted to take a look ahead today. You know, over the past week or so, uh, we've really start to see the timeline flooded with guys in the transfer portal, with guys talking about where they plan to take visits to uh, as they begin receiving interest while they're in the transfer portal. You know, this is the greatest thing ever for those content aggregators, uh, for those folks on 24-7 and all that that are just writing articles for the sake of writing articles because it's a never-ending news cycle with the transfer portal. I mean, you got Rothstein out there tweeting out all the schools that a player's heard from. Um, just, just crazy stuff. You can overanalyze this thing to death. But, you know, the conversations about the transfer portal are limitless. They're never-ending. And the speculation can really just run rampant um, to a point where it gets awkward to talk about the transfer portal because you don't want to start making it seem like guys are unhappy or guys want to leave a place when they're really doing just fine. Purdue's certainly no exception here. Um, if you're over on the message boards, if you're over on the Twitter sphere, uh, you've certainly seen fans going through their portal wish list, going through what, what Purdue needs to do in the, in the transfer portal in their eyes and what the roster needs most. And there's no perfect answer to any of this, but it is very much worth looking at where Purdue stands and what it could be doing in the transfer portal here. So right now it is a crowded, crowded roster. Uh, you look at Purdue's scholarship grid Assuming Zach Eady comes back for next year, and I will throw the disclaimer out that I, I have no earthly idea what happens there, um, whether he's, uh, I'll presume he's going to go through the NBA draft process, uh, go to the combine, work out for some NBA teams, and then make a decision. He has until the end of May to make that decision. So it's going to be a while till we have a definitive answer. But, you know, Purdue has 11 or 12 scholarships accounted for right now, uh, depending on what Zach Eady does. That's a pretty, pretty, pretty thick mix there. Um, that's a crowded roster. You know, really, the you could get the entire rotation back besides David Jenkins Jr. Um, include Brian Waddell in there. He was in the rotation at the start of the year. And then you add Camden Heidi, Will Berg, and Miles Colvin to that mix of playing time. Um, it's hard to play more than nine guys, as we saw, you know, last year when Brandon Newman got squeezed out of the rotation. Certainly this year when Brian Waddell wasn't playing in Big Ten play, but that would have you with twelve, <laughs> um, and only one of them would be redshirtable, and Miles Colvin. Whether he would redshirt or not, you know, I don't know. I tend to doubt it, but you never know. 
Uh, I would have doubted that Trey Kaufman Wren was going to redshirt too. With that many guys, will Purdue lose a player to the transfer portal? And if so, who could it be? And I'll say this. I don't like projecting who's going to stay and who's going to leave just because I, you know, I'm not, I'm not in the locker room with these guys. I don't know these guys. I don't know how happy they are or are not at Purdue. For all I know, they love it. Um, it's their favorite place in the world. They never want to leave. And for all I know, you know, they, they could take it or leave it. They just want to get playing time. So I hate projecting it, but you look at guys where it could make sense. I think Brandon Newman's probably the one that seems the most possible just because it's been such an up and down ride for him at Purdue. Um, you know, this year he, he had the nice moment there at the end of the season, but you know, as a whole, it just hasn't gone the way I think he thought it would the way a lot of fans thought it would, and probably the way Purdue coaches thought it would following his redshirt freshman season in 2021. Uh, the last couple years haven't been great. Shot only 36% from the field and 31% from three this year. Um, you know, scored six points a game. Probably not the impact that he expected to have this year. Does he want to go, you know, just spend one final year fresh somewhere else? You know, I think it's quite possible. If Zach Eadie's going to come back, how are these front court minutes going to be split? Because you would have five guys to play two positions, basically. Um, you know, you'd have Mason Gillis, who can really only play the four. He's not going to play the five. You have Zach Eady, who's only going to play the five. And while I can't necessarily comment on Will Berg's game too much, I'd be quite surprised if Will Berg was playing the four. You have Caleb first, Trey Kaufman, Wren. You know, maybe they could kind of be that tweener there. But that's that's a lot of guys playing 80 minutes and a lot of those going to Zach Eady. Um, if Zach Eady's going to come back, that's a pretty crowded front court to, to manage out on the perimeter. You know, you have Fletcher lawyer coming back. You have Ethan Morton probably coming back. I'd be pretty surprised if he transferred, but crazier things have happened in the transfer portal era. Where do Brian Waddell, Camden, Heidi, miles Colvin, where do they kind of fit in there? Um, and I don't know, you know, it, all accounts are that Camden Heidi is pretty well thought of. Obviously, Miles Colvin is as athletic of a player as Purdue has brought in in some time. Uh, there's going to be a jump in competition without a doubt. Uh, it's it's a big one for him. But um, and, you know, Brian Waddell before his injury, uh, we were hearing great things about him now. Where is he in terms of recovery? Is he really 100%? You know, I have no idea. But it's going to be interesting to see how these pieces fall here. Of course, you have Braden Smith back at point guard, but you don't have a natural fit behind him. Is Purdue going to add guys from the portal? 
And I, I think the better question probably is who is Purdue going to add from the portal because it's almost unrealistic to think that there are going to be many off seasons again in college basketball where a team doesn't at least add one player from the portal. And at bare minimum, you know every team is looking in the portal to see who they can pluck out of there, who can make them better next season. But I will make the very clear differentiator here. What Purdue wants from the portal and what it can get from the portal may be two very, very different things because you look at last spring and I've heard this, you know, over and over again that, you know, the criticism here is that Matt Painter is stubborn with his style of play and doesn't want athletic guards, which, you know, I'm not sure I really agree with, given that he had Jaden Ivey and then went after a number of guys in the transfer portal that were more athletic than David Jenkins Jr., um, you know, you look at how last year went in the portal for Purdue. It had all the playing time in the world to offer to guys in the backcourt. It had um, Ethan Morton and Brandon Newman as your two known commodities coming back and nothing else. You had Braden Smith and Fletcher Lawyer coming in and that was it. Purdue missed on, what, four or five guys? I mean, I'm thinking of Nigel Pack, Tyrese Hunter, Jameer Young, Courtney Ramey, all guys who were kind of tied to Purdue a little bit before Purdue brings in David Jenkins Jr. You know, of course, NIL played a significant factor in some of that. You know, you certainly know about Nigel Pack. Um, You just saw him. He's in the final four now. Miami made a pretty good investment there. He had himself, he's had himself an incredible NCAA tournament run so far. Um, you know, who knows what we're talking about here if Nigel Pack doesn't get bought by Miami and uh, ends up going to Purdue the way it kind of seemed like he would. But, you know, now Purdue certainly does feel more confident in its NIL capabilities now than it did a summer ago. It's worth pointing out that there's really only one way to go for Purdue's NIL capabilities from where they were last summer. Uh, Really wasn't going to get worse. But on the flip side of that coin, Purdue has a lot less playing time to offer than it did a season ago because no matter how you feel about Braden Smith and Fletcher Lawyer There have been plenty of hot takes out there since the the Farley Dickinson loss. In my opinion, we've seen plenty from them in their freshman seasons to think that they're going to be really good players at Purdue. It's not an easy sell to bring in guards when you return two guys who started every single game and played around 30 minutes a game apiece as a freshman. It's just not an easy, easy recruiting job to say you're going to, you know, you're going to come in and unseat those guys. That's, you know, that's going to be difficult for Purdue. It's going to be tough to overcome. You know, they also have Ethan Morton back who started the majority of games 
Um, you have Miles Colvin coming in. You have Camden Heidi coming off a red shirt. This backcourt gets really crowded really quick. Um, and you could have Brandon Newman coming back. You know, it, it gets to the point where Purdue has a clear need at backup point guard. That's kind of the one spot where you look at the rotation and that's where the definitive minutes are, assuming everyone comes back. Because Purdue really doesn't have that backup point guard. You know, we've seen at times Ethan Morton and Fletcher Lawyer kind of handle the ball a little bit, but not to that, not to that level. So can Purdue pull another David Jenkins Jr. type out of the portal? Maybe. Is that enough to really move the needle? I probably say no. You know, I think David Jenkins Jr. brought some really valuable intangibles to Purdue this season. By all accounts, he was a great locker room guy. Uh, he really seemed to enjoy being just part of a really good team, something that he didn't do at UNLV or Utah. I think that was something really good for him, but you know, let's face it here. He was held scoreless in 11 of Purdue's 35 games, averaged three points a game. Um, for comparison there, Ethan Morton was held scoreless six times. So the guy that, you know, really got pointed out quite a bit for not being a scorer, well, you know, he he scored more, um, averaged the same amount of points per game, but you know, scored in more games than David Jenkins Jr. did. But, you know, it, if Purdue brings in another guy who's going to score 3.9 points a game and what did he shoot from the field? Shoot 37% from the field. How much does that move the needle? I don't know. You know, the clear narrative and the clear want from the fans is that Purdue needs to add an elite athlete on the perimeter and Purdue's tried to do that. Um, and I think, you know, with Miles Colvin coming in as a freshman, you know, you never know what you're going to get. But between Miles Colvin and Cannon Catchings, you have some athleticism there. Uh, how athletic is Camden Heidi? Certainly from his pregame dunks, he looks athletic. Purdue had Jaden Ivey. Um, Purdue has Purdue's tried to get more athletic out there. And to act like otherwise is kind of intentionally deceitful, if you ask me. Um, again, those guys aren't necessarily a dime a dozen. You know, the guys who are athletic, who can handle the ball, who can shoot it. Those guys aren't easy to come by. Um, but at the end of the day, what Purdue can realistically bring in is probably going to be a little bit different than what you know some of the dream wish list stuff may be unless guys transfer out first. One to close out here today with a topic that really you know Purdue fans get excited about. Um, it's when former assistants move on in their careers and that happened with Micah Shrewsbury going to Notre Dame. Obviously, a move that had been rumored ever since Mike Bray announced his re resignation at Notre Dame finally came to fruition. And, you know, really, it can't come as much of a surprise 
it is a fantastic hire for Notre Dame. Purdue fans, you know, you're listening to this podcast, you know how strong of a coach Micah Shrewsbury is, how positive of an influence he's been on Purdue's program. You know what he did at Penn State. Um, did a nice job there. It is a brutal loss for Penn State, but again, you know, it's not really unexpected. Uh, they they probably saw this coming. This was, if you ask me, the perfect time for Micah Shrewsbury to move on. I don't know how much better things were going to get at Penn State than what he did this past season. Um, the word on the street was that Penn State was, you know, ready to pay Micah Shrewsbury more. They were ready to get better NIL support for the basketball program, ready to invest in the sport in a way they never have. Now, were they going to pay him the $4 million plus that he's getting at Notre Dame? You know, I don't know. Micah Shrewsbury now makes more than Matt Painter does. Uh, that's that, that's quite that's interesting. Um, uh, Matt Painter's been kind of a bargain deal for Purdue lately for uh, how much he's won. Um, but, you know, does this impact Purdue is kind of the question here. And if so, how? In one regard, I say yes, because Mike Bray never really prioritized recruiting the state of Indiana. It's a much different dynamic at Notre Dame, of course. Um, Notre Dame is a school that is located in Indiana, but by no means is it really an Indiana school. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a national brand. It's a national, national deal. You know, they, they recruit Catholic high schools across the country so well, and they've gotten some good players up from Northern Indiana. Like you look at Demetrius Jackson was really good there. Blake Wesley was good. Um, now Marcus Burton from Penn, who will likely win Mr. Basketball this year is headed there. One of the Zellers went there. I can't can't remember which one. It was either Luke or Tyler. I get them all mixed up all the time. And then um, they had the Mr. Basketball back in the early 2000s. But as a whole, Notre Dame doesn't recruit the state of Indiana tremendously hard. Um, I'd imagine that changes under Micah Shrewsbury. I'd be quite surprised if it didn't. So it brings another program to recruit against. How much does that impact Purdue? You know, I don't know. The The age-old question is, are Purdue and Notre Dame going to start playing regularly? And I have no, no earthly idea what Purdue's scheduling plans are. So everything I say here is just pure speculation. I don't think coaches who used to coach together generally like to play one another's teams. I know Matt Painter's always said, you know, he doesn't really like coaching against his old assistants. I think that's a pretty common sentiment across college basketball. So I wouldn't expect to see some annual home and home, you know, type deal between the two. But what I could see, and again, this is as reckless of speculation as it gets. I got no reason to believe this could happen, but it could be possible maybe that Notre Dame joins Purdue's efforts to play more in Indianapolis. We know how important having that annual game in Indianapolis is to Matt Painter, and it is pretty well known 
that Purdue's ambitions are to have a much better event there every year than what they did this past year with, uh, what, it was called the Indy Classic or something. Purdue played Davidson, Ball State played Illinois State. Attendance was low. Um, you know, it was the first year that it happened in that format outside of the Crossroads Classic. Could this be something moving forward where it's a doubleheader type, where Purdue plays a power conference opponent and then Notre Dame plays a power conference opponent? I think maybe. I think that may make some sense. Um, I think that would be something that maybe moves the needle to A, sell more tickets and just create a more compelling event to get you know, better opponents for both Purdue and Notre Dame. Because, you know, as I did a whole whole podcast, really, after that Davidson game, uh, was how reason how realistic is it that Purdue keeps doing this Indianapolis thing? That would be a way to make it a lot more realistic. Next week, we're going to do a Tuesday morning release of the episode. Uh, I'll record it Monday. It'll be the official end of college basketball season. So we'll do one final look at where Purdue goes next. Look at what's to come for Purdue and a pretty critical offseason for the Boilermaker program. Um, If you have anything you'd like me to talk about on next week's episode, send it my way on Twitter at Boilers Beyond. But that's all I've got for you today. Thank you for spending your time with me. I appreciate all of you who have listened to the show throughout this entire season. Um, If you don't subscribe, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow along on Twitter at Boilers Beyond. And until next time, try to enjoy the final four, although it's not going to be the most appealing one that we've seen. Take care, everybody.